there is a black Volvo in the parking lot. I have been alerted that your lights are on. So if that is you, um, you might want to take care of that. If you have a Bible, please open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be getting into the real meat of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount today. I'm excited. So we enter into this section on the Sermon on the Mount that is traditionally known as the Beatitudes, the section in Matthew 5 between verses 3 and 12. It is about as exciting and about as daunting of a task to preach as you can have with any text in the Bible. Exciting because the Beatitudes serve as the entry portal into the Sermon on the Mount. Exciting because this is one of the most radical, or in, in my opinion, the most radical message that has ever been shared in the humanity of man. Think about that. With all of the speeches, all of the sermons that have ever been shared, these three chapters of Matthew may comprise the most radical statements ever been said in the history of man. Exciting. Because when rightly understood, we understand that the gospel is called the good news for a reason. Because Jesus is proclaiming good news to a broken world. And it was truly exciting for the broken people that were hearing it. And maybe it's just me, but it's truly exciting because sometimes when I hear people within my own evangelical camp, and I'm not trying to snipe friendly fire, but it's just the truth. When I hear them share what they call the good news... There's something that just grates against my spirit. And I'm like, it, it sounds good news, but, but you're not making it sound very good. I, I know that you're saying the good news, but if I was not acquainted with this good news being good news, the good news that you are sharing doesn't seem like it's good news. And the countenance with which you share it doesn't seem as if it's good news that you want to be sharing with me. And when you understand the Sermon on the Mount, when you really grasp it the way that it's supposed to be understood, the Beatitudes are this exciting entry into this section because when rightly understood and rightly taught, they proclaim the good news of a kingdom that was actually really, really, really good news to people that were badly in need of hearing good news. But it's also daunting because if you were to trace the development of thought throughout Western civilization, since these words have been given, some of the greatest thinkers who have ever populated our history books have spent a lot of time grappling with these words. And if you want something really humbling, some of the greatest thinkers throughout the last 2,000 years have grappled with these words and seemingly gotten them very wrong. So if that's not something to humble your tiny contribution and make it feel as if it's a tiny drop of water into a big ocean. I don't know what will, but hopefully it's a worthwhile contribution. I just had a couple of quotes on um, a wide variety of what great minds have thought about the Beatitudes. This one comes from one of my favorite preachers, a man named Charles Spurgeon. He says, We are all of us remarkably good-tempered while we have our own way. But true meekness, which is the work of grace, will stand the fire of persecution and will endure the test of enmity, cruelty, wrong, even as the meekness of Christ did upon the cross of Calvary. That was from Spurgeon in his eight sermons on the Beatitudes. This quote 
completely, um, boy, this, this one had me thinking for a while this week. This is from a man named Kurt Vanagut. You might be familiar with him, a um, atheist, at least agnostic philosopher who can sometimes be very antagonistic towards Christian views. But he said, for some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. But often, with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. It's from Kurt Vanagut, a man without a country. And then one that I think I like the most, because he's one of my favorite theologians, a man named Groucho Marx. He said, blessed are the cracked, for they shall let in the light which I think um, he pretty much nailed what Jesus was getting at in this passage. But anybody excited today that Jesus blesses the cracked and allows the light? I mean, I read that quote, and I was just like, it's too good not to put in there, even though it doesn't fit with anywhere where I'm going with it. But even with the amount of stuff that is available on the Beatitudes, and believe me, it's an overwhelming amount. This sermon was really tough to develop, not because I didn't have enough time to study, but because I had so much time to study. And if you really try to wrap your mind around and your arms around all the stuff that's out there on the Sermon on the Mount, um, boy, it is really intimidating. But that being said, there have been very few passages that have been interpreted as poorly and therefore applied as poorly historically as the Beatitudes and as a result, the Sermon on the Mount that comes from them. So after immersing myself in the text, something that um, John and I and a couple of your elders have been doing is for the last 60 days, we read the entire Sermon on the Mount every single day just to immerse ourselves in the text. And then we just have like an hour of going back and forth with the text with one another. And I want to bleed the Sermon on the Mount. That was my, my goal by the time we got to this text. Spurgeon used to say, prick me and I will bleed Bibline. And that's the way that I wanted to be with the Sermon on the Mount. And after immersing myself in it for the last two months, I've come to the conclusion that the reason this passage is usually off when it's taught, I'll come back to two main reasons. The passage is usually taught as if it's a literary unit on its own, like the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are usually even further isolated from the context that they're within, that they're seen as their own unit, and the Beatitudes are seen as their own unit within the Sermon on the Mount, instead of the more responsible approach of seeing the Sermon on the Mount as a part of a book, namely the book of Matthew, as coming out of a direct context, namely chapter 4 that John preached on last week, and as being a part of a much grander story, this story that we will be talking about for 10 straight weeks called the Kingdom of God. The second reason that it's understood so poorly so often is because the terms are rarely defined, leaving us with terms that have some heavy-duty religious baggage right at the onset, right at the, the portal way of getting into the Sermon on the Mount. But, but I don't think you see it any more clearly than this one term. If you look at verses 3 through 12, it's just repeated in every single verse, this term, blessed. It's a term that has a ton of churchy, religious 
baggage attached to it. I mean, think about it. How often do we use the word blessed in regular, everyday life? It's just not a phrase. I know that you do use it, Sandy Lockwood. But um, so if, if I start dogging on the term, I mean anybody but Sandy, because that's like every third word out of her mouth. But, but we're going to be unpacking that problem, because it is a problem. Jesus was speaking in common terms that would have been used in normal everyday life because he wanted to communicate something to normal everyday people, these things that pertain to Jesus and that he was saying define what normal everyday life is supposed to look like in life with Christ. That's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be using the term flourishing instead of blessed and a little bit I'm going to tell you some exegetical and some contextual reasons why we see that as an important nuance as we go along. But the reason that we're all laying all of this groundwork up front and doing kind of an intro number two is because if we don't use the context to define the content and define the terms, to define their meaning, then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is rarely interpreted correctly and is very hard to understand. It's like the old illustration of building a ladder. You could build the greatest ladder in the world, but if you put it up against the wrong wall, it's not going to take you to the right place. So like questions like this just are impossible to answer if you don't take the time to define your terms. What does Jesus mean when he is describing what being blessed or for our purposes what flourishing will look like? Why does Jesus pick out of all the characteristics that he could have picked? Why does Jesus pick these characteristics to define what flourishing looks like? Where should we expect this flourishing to take place? When should we expect this flourishing to take place? Is this something that we should be expecting to see Jesus doing here and now, or is this a future eschatological blessing? And the way you answer the question when will greatly influence the who you see in terms of who will be flourishing in this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And to take it to verses 13 through 16, why does Jesus seem to believe that these definitions of flourishing or would best reflect him in a way that allows our light to shine in a world where people see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. But most important, before we jump into the text, if we don't define our turns and the context, we end up defining the wrong kingdom populated by the wrong inhabitants, leading to the wrong understanding of the right king. And in my opinion, this is the greatest obstacle to the gospel and sharing the gospel to lost and broken people that the world faces and that we face as followers of Jesus Christ. So we should labor to get this right. Because when Jesus gave this news, this repelled the religious, but attracted those who were broken and the most vile of this earth wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And for some reason, they saw it as very good news. So our context. Last week, John did a brilliant job setting up the context of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he went through Christ's call to discipleship in chapter 4. He spoke about how Matthew quoted Isaiah about how the kingdom was going to be made available to those who have been considered spiritually shut off by quoting Isaiah chapter 9 
that the light of the gospel is even being made known to the Gentiles of the Galilee. And then Jesus calls people to repent for living of the kingdom of this world and the world's systems and to realize that life in Jesus, the true kingdom, was truly at hand. Then Matthew 4 made it very clear that the call to repent was a call to die to this world, a call to die to the systems of this world. And we see that with the first disciples who were called to repentance and the pronouncement of the kingdom. Matthew uses very intentional language in Matthew chapter 4 when he speaks of the first disciples, how they immediately left their nets and they immediately left their father in the boat and followed Jesus. This would have been unthinkable in that culture that this was written to at that time. Even if you were to go into a Middle Eastern culture today and say those words, this would still be considered unthinkable in that culture, further showing that this calling to live the kingdom life of Jesus means leaving whatever it is that we know and find our security in to be willing to adopt a radical new mindset regarding this thing that Jesus always seemed to talk about throughout the Gospels, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And then we see this outpouring of grace where Jesus goes through the town healing all sorts of illnesses from people that would have been considered cut off, even by the Levitical system of that day, but even more so by the social religious trappings that had taken what God had made and contorted it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. So Jesus shows that when he comes to bring the good news, that the good news is actually good news to the most destitute and broken of people. Somehow, this new kingdom would belong to such as these, which should get your gears spinning before teaching on the kingdom begins in chapter 5. So chapter 4 sets up the teaching on the kingdom that we're going to be getting into by serving up a grace sandwich for you all to eat. So by grace, there is this new light that's shining on those that have been considered completely outside the bounds of grace. But now there is grace shining in the darkness for these people. How cool is it that when our Savior begins his kingdom ministry, he begins it with a proclamation to say that those who are once considered cut off are now the ones that have the light shining to them, and they are now the ones to whom the good news of this new kingdom is being made available. Is anybody out there grateful that Jesus consciously chose to build his kingdom on the backs of the most broken and downtrodden of people and did not consider you as people being cut off from grace, but saw you as the very vehicles of grace that he wanted to establish this kingdom on. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that gets me fired up when I think about that. Then there's this moral commandment in the grace sandwich, the meat in the middle, if you will. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. In other words, die to what you ever thought and die to the way that you formerly lived in order to come and truly find life by following me. Turn or change your mind from what you thought previously in order to live the new life that I'm offering you. And then we actually see people dying to their old life in order to follow the way of Jesus. Then the back end of the grace sandwich where Jesus shows this kingdom being put into action the same way he told John the Baptist, 
when John was in jail and was just like, I didn't think that this is what the kingdom was going to look like. So he sends some messengers to Jesus saying, Jesus, is the kingdom going to come now or should we be looking for another? And he says, go and tell him what you see. The deaf receive hearing. The blind receive sight. The lame are able to walk again. He's saying, look, you can see it by my actions to the least of these, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. So he fills out the bottom layer of that grace sandwich. And the reason that I take so much time with this is because without having this as your starting point, you come to the Sermon on the Mount missing the richness of what Matthew and through Matthew, the Holy Spirit is trying to paint as the backdrop of what the Beatitudes are really supposed to be and how they're supposed to be understood. Without it, you kind of just come barging in to this kingdom teaching. When the Holy Spirit has actually been building this from the jump of the book of Matthew. So the message of the Beatitudes actually emerges from a context within this book. And I'm going to read the kind of long quote by Dale Allison, a uh, theologian down at Princeton Seminary who said this so much better than I could, and it, and it kind of blows his, my, my mind. It's uh, up there for anybody. Though. It's kind of technical, but try to follow along. He says, so in 5, 3 through 12, the faithful are not being called to behave any differently than they are now. Rather, they, being, they are being offered consolation in their present trying circumstances. In this connection, our examination of the structure of the Sermon on the Mount is relevant. The Beatitudes come between 4.23 through 5.2 and 5.13 through 16. The former serves to put Jesus' harsh demands within a context of grace before exhorting Jesus' heals. The latter is a general heading for what follows. The disciples are called to be salt and light. So structurally, the Beatitudes come before the detailed commands and the sermon proper. That is, they're separated from the main body of imperatives or commandments. This is because 5, 3 through 12 functions less as a demand than as a blessing. It is only after hearing the comforting words of 5, 3 through 12, words that tell of rewards that human beings cannot create for themselves, but can only receive as gifts from God that one is confronted by the Messiah's demands. So when Jesus speaks in 5, 3 through 12, the chief result is not the burdening of the faithful with moral imperatives. Listen to this again. This is where the quote kind of just comes to bear. The chief result is not the burdening of the faithful with more moral imperatives. Rather, 5, 3 through 12 brings solace by exhibiting to the religious imagination the good things of the life to come, it compensates those who are, because of their commitment to Jesus, suffering in this world. That's from Dale Allison, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's break down what we just heard, because I know that was a pretty technical quote. He's saying that the Beatitudes are not some new sort of law to learn how to behave like Jesus wanted you to behave. He argues that they were sandwiched between the context that we just referenced in chapter 4 for a unique reason. And he believes that the way of Jesus was to wrap hard demands that you're going to be seeing throughout the rest of this sermon in a sandwich of grace. This passage directly after the Beatitudes is the one that famously talks about being salt and light and letting your light shine before men in such a way that they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And he uses both his critical bookends to help understand the content in between in the Beatitudes. The, the fact 
that the flow of this section reads more like a Proverbs type of wisdom literature than the rest of the story is showing you that they were supposed to stand out from the rest of the Beatitudes. Furthermore, this section offers gracious gifts from God that cannot be created but only be received as gracious gifts of God. Things like, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, for the morning shall be comforted. He goes on to say when Jesus speaks of the benefits and the Beatitudes, the chief result was not to burden the faithful with more moral imperatives. It was meant to be good news to the people that were actually presently suffering in this world and to those who are presently suffering for their commitment to follow Jesus in this world. And the teaching by the king on what his kingdom is going to look like begins with taking the most downtrodden in the land and saying, guess what? I see you. Hey, poor in spirit, you know what? I see you. Hey, to you, those who are mourning, I see you in your mourning. And guess what? Comfort for your mourning is a normative part of what it means to live within my kingdom that I'm coming to establish. If you've ever heard the song, I'm the Man in Black by Johnny Cash, that's the ethos that this is supposed to be read by. He's saying, man, so that we're reminded of the ones who are held back up front, there always should be the man in black. I'd like to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay, but just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back up front, there's going to be a man in black. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's standing out as that man in black saying, we will remember the downtrodden in this kingdom. As a matter of fact, they are going to be central and focal to this kingdom. So He's standing on the side of the oppressed to encourage the broken and oppressed people. What Jesus is saying is, I've come for the oppressed and for the broken of this world so that they might reign with the king in the new kingdom in ways that their oppressors in this current kingdom are not even able to see. Just like he did by announcing his kingdom in chapter 4 by preaching about the gospel going to the Gentiles. So just like he did... After preaching about the kingdom in chapter 4, he went throughout Galilee and began showing God's deep care for the broken when he was healing the sick, the oppressed, the diseased, the demon-possessed, and a variety of other crushing ailments where God shows you that God incarnate when he came to earth always had a heart for the afflicted. The reason I spent so much time laying out the foundation of the Beatitudes is this. The news of the kingdom is presently supposed to be good news to the presently broken and afflicted of this world. Not just future good news of a kingdom that is going to happen after we die. Otherwise, they would not sandwich in the middle of it in chapter 6. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to repeat that. The reason this is so important is because... The kingdom is supposed to presently be good news to those who are the afflicted and the suffering. That's what comes out of seeing the Beatitudes as being intentionally framed in this intentional manner. And that's huge. And that's not the way that the Beatitudes are typically taught, which is why I'm spending some time on this, because I've always told you that my best job I could do for you as a teacher is to equip you to be able to go and read your Bibles rightly and receive from the Holy Spirit. The way that the 
Beatitudes are usually taught as something like this. Jesus is saying that you need to go and be poor in spirit. Anybody ever hear this? I know I have. I've even taught it. There's a commandment saying that we need more poverty of spirit because without becoming poor in spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So we should have this spiritual poverty and desperation that kind of defines ourselves. And through that poverty, we realize that we are in need of something greater, something other, something more than ourselves because our poverty shows us that we cannot achieve the righteousness of God on our own. That's the way this is usually taught. And what I'd like to say is that's somewhat true, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He was not laying down a demand to go be poor in spirit as I've, as I've always been taught. What he's saying is that his kingdom, those who have been crushed by this world system, in my kingdom, the true kingdom, it belongs to them. This is radical. I don't, I wish I could just transport you back 2,000 years so that you could be sitting with the Roman Empire and all of its glory around you and him looking out at the poor in spirit and saying, that's not my kingdom. This is my kingdom. It belongs to people such as this. Or flourishing are those that mourn. The teaching believes that is usually given here is that if we truly understood the holiness of Jesus, we would mourn over our sin. And in doing so, through our penitent nature of mourning, we're inviting the Holy Spirit as a comforter to come in and do his work. Again, that is true. That is not bad theology, but it is not what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying is, in his kingdom, the true kingdom, the people that are presently the ones who are mourning in this world because of the world system are going to find comfort for their warning. And yes, there is this eschatological future reality that comfort will be the new normal of our existence someday, but he is giving comfort to those who are mourning right now. And there's this other teaching that is very popular that says that the point of the Sermon on the Mount was to show us that we can't possibly achieve the demands that he's giving. So we need what Martin Luther referred to as an alien righteousness to come in and fill us because the best that we could give was filthy rags. Again, nothing wrong with that. That's good Reformation theology. We see how Paul talks about the law being a schoolmaster to be able to show us our inability to keep it and to be able to point us to the one who kept it perfectly in Galatians 3.24-26. through 26. But it might be good theology. It might be right about the gospel. But it's not what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, it leads to wrong interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. And most of those faulty interpretations come out of a faulty understanding of what Jesus is saying, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 5, 21, and they are not understanding righteousness, dikaienos, by Jesus because they are taking the Pauline usage of that term and just using it as an imprint where it was not meant to do so. And we'll get into the problems with that two sermons from now. The big problem with that belief is that it takes away our moral obligation from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually expects that his followers would live like him. I'm going to say it as clearly as I can 
the thesis of this message, the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. The kids of the kingdom are supposed to reflect the king. That's the whole point of this message. And this changes everything. The Beatitudes are now no longer some list of moral imperatives that were placed to burden people. They're a message of good news. They're a word of grace to those who would not have had much by way of good news in a world that got to where it got by stepping on them and oppressing them by stepping on their heads. The other key thing to understanding the Beatitudes is a better understanding the constant repetition of this term blessed that's used in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, straight down to verse 11. The word is repeated at the beginning of every Beatitude, but it's a really weird term, even in English. I don't hear the word blessed just in conversations I go about typically being used to describe things. And when it is used, it's kind of used in a spiritual religious context that I don't think the audience of Jesus would have understood the spiritual things that we import into that term in order to make it make sense. When a term has been so crusted over by religion, we do ourselves well to rethink the present English term and how it's morphed and if it still reflects the Greek well. This is a study, a discipline known as etymology. Words change over time. I could give you several examples. So the Greek term makarios, which is what's being translated as blessed over and over, it's like a really weird term. This term blessed is not only odd in English, there's problems with the Greek from a theological and linguistic standpoint. First off, there is no equivalence in English of the Greek term makarios. And from a theological perspective, the way that we interpret this can impact the way that we understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. I heard a quote from a wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount regarding the translation then the theology that stems from it. It says, this much is clear. What is difficult, however, is how to render makarios into English. This is not a mere speculative exercise. It has very significant import for how the Beatitudes are interpreted overall. Unfortunately, many commentators do little exploration of this complex issue. Scott McKnight is a rare exception. He notes both Jewish and Greek philosophical backgrounds of this word, as well as the difficulty of translating it into English. We cannot avoid this matter because, as McKnight rightly observes, on this one word, hear me here, and you'll know why I'm giving this much introductory stuff. On this one word, the entire passage stands, and from this one word, the entire list hangs. Get this word right, and the rest fall into place. Get it wrong, and the whole thing falls apart. Big words. So he chooses to translate the term makarios as flourishing. Since it's an odd term, he actually goes back to the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, and it's most used in Psalm chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there for a moment, and then I think you'll smell what it is that I'm cooking. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night 
that Hebrew term aram that is used here is better translated throughout Scripture as flourishing. And when you read Psalm 1 and read it through the lenses of what you can think of through the term flourishing and you take off the religious trappings of the word blessed and you read it again, flourishing is this man. You want to know who flourishes? The one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or the one who stands in the way of scoffers or sits in the way of sinners and I've reversed those two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates day and night. This flourishing man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. This flourishing man's leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're not flourishing like this. But they're like chaff. The wind drives away. When you understand it through flourishing, it changes the whole meaning of a beloved text and really, really makes it practical. This is not telling me how to go and be blessed This is telling me how to flourish by living the life of God that was demonstrated by the God-man who came incarnate and showed us what God looks like. When you start to see through flourishing, man, this text just pops. Understanding what it means to flourish is critical to understanding life with Jesus in his kingdom. I know that was a lot of intro work, but check this out. There's a really neat reason to why we did that. If you do your intro work well and you give good framework, then you understand the Beatitudes as one literary unit pronouncing good news of a radical new kingdom rather than trying to parse these out to figure out each individual commandment. They were never written as a commandment to begin with. So there's that. So what I'm going to do is go through each one very quickly and show there was a blessing to the person that was living in whatever the situation mentioned in this beatitude and why this would be something that Jesus would consider as defining flourishing, what it means that Jesus is pronouncing flourishing on these people. And the second is we're going to see that Jesus embodied each of these beatitudes. So it starts off with blessed are the poor in spirit in verse three, for theirs is the kingdom. And I love this verse. Jesus is giving good news to those who are already the poor in spirit. This is not a commandment to go and try to be more poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit has become like this Christian code word for humble in the way that this is usually taught. If Jesus, check this out, this is the beautiful thing with language. If Jesus wanted to say humble, he could have said humble. That word is used, go read Philippians 2 if you don't believe me that that word can be found anywhere in the New Testament. But he didn't say humble. He said poor in spirit. This is talking about those who have been crushed by this world and its system. This is talking about the broken and used, mistreated, abused. That's what this passage is about. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is good news. These are going to be the ones that flourish in my kingdom. In fact, my kingdom belongs to people like you. And you want to know why? Because Jesus was the one who was truly poor in spirit. Think about Philippians chapter 2 where it says that he left his abode and he emptied himself, even becoming obedient 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that by the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was the one who was truly crushed because of his poverty of spirit. And through Jesus' poverty of spirit, the king can now build a kingdom consisting of the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is bringing present good news to those who are presently mourning in this present age. I don't want a show of hands, but is anybody here who is mourning this morning? I'm not just talking about a little bit sad or bummed out. I mean, grieving over something. This is saying that in Jesus' kingdom, people like you are the ones that are comforted. Right now, we see that by identifying with those who mourn and coming alongside of them is a way that we can actually be like Jesus to broken people. And then the comforter, a name that Jesus uses in John chapter 12, for the Holy Spirit comes and comforts mourners in his kingdom. This is good news. Imagine. And has anybody here ever gotten a greeting card from somebody when you were mourning? Man, how did that make you feel that somebody stopped to think about you? Now, you who are mourning, stop and consider this. That God came and said, you're flourishing now. Here's my greeting card. You're invited to my kingdom where you're going to receive comfort here and now, but forever on, forevermore, I will be the one, says Revelation chapter 1, who will eventually wipe away every tear from their eyes, and the only thing you shall know will be comfort in that day. And if, if that greeting card was a good news, wouldn't getting a greeting card from Jesus be good news? Telling you comfort is on the way. Jesus can identify with them in their grief because we are told in the prophecies that he is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, blessed are the ones who don't just come and try to take and believe that might makes right. Blessed are the ones who have taken the low place. Blessed are the ones who cannot and will not take things by force. Jesus is the truly meek one. Numbers 12, 23 told us that Moses was the most meek man who had ever been born. But remember the sermon last week that Jesus is presented in the Sermon of the Mount as the greater than Moses teacher who now comes to walk amongst us and the meek will inherit the earth with Jesus. Ironically, the ones who took the kingdoms of this earth that didn't belong to them will not be the ones who inherit it. For the ones who knew that they could not take it because they didn't have the might to be able to shall be gifted that kingdom, not taking it by their might. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, this is a good word. It's a word that you can't understand the book of Romans without being able to understand how Paul uses this word. But righteousness really just comes from the concept of rightness, being made right. Even our theological understanding of justification by grace means that we were made right in the sight of God and that he has taken away our sin and he has given us his rightness and imputed it to us in its place. And it's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for rightness. Man, this, I, I just want to talk to you as a, your brother. Does anybody get sick of turning on the news and seeing what a 
broken, stinking world we live in. Like, does anybody just tap out and say, why even turn it on? I mean, I, I haven't turned on the news. I didn't turn on the news the whole sabbatical. When I left for sabbatical, Trump was being impeached. There were problems in the Middle East. I get back from sabbatical. There, Trump is being impeached. And like, why did, if, if I didn't even keep up with any of it, over three months, the news cycle still t- stayed the same. But I mean, I'm not even just talking about the depressingness of news in general. Does anybody ever get particularly riled up over the greed that allows the rich to get richer by stepping on the heads of the poor? Does anyone get emotional when they think of the murder of the voiceless infants? Sex trafficking. Systemic racism. I mean, do those things affect anybody on like a soul level? That's because of the anti-rightness of those things. Things were never supposed to be that way. So we should long for those things to be made right. Just as it says in Romans chapter 8, that all of us, along with all of creation, groan for the Creator to come back and bring His rightness in the bent ways of this world. Jesus' kingdom is good news that someday those of you who long for the broken to be made right will see satisfaction for that desire because it reflects the heart of God. But we know it reflects the heart of God because Jesus is the one who truly hungered and thirsted for righteousness. So much so that he left the throne of his father above and put on a meat suit and came down and lived amongst you and lived the truly righteous life where he stood for rightness. And sometimes we can get a little bit too cradle to the gravy when we describe Jesus. You know that there was actually a life in between his birth and, re- and his resurrection. That Jesus did not consist of just Christmas and Easter. There were four chapters of Gospels that were in there for a reason. His life mattered in the way that he manifested rightness in his life mattered. And his life was a demonstration of somebody who truly lived a righteous life and somebody who truly knew what it meant to hunger and thirst for rightness. And his death, he gave us the power over those things that are not right. And he gave us the ability for us who are not right in the sight of God to be made right in the sight of God through faith in what he has done for us on the cross. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is good news for those who receive mercy and show mercy in this world. Has anybody ever worked in a corporate environment where showing mercy is actually looked upon as if it's weakness, and you know that you have to be careful to be manifest, to manifest mercy because you know that you could be walked on at any point? This is saying no. But that was a God-given desire that was put within you. And those of you that are hungering and thirsting for this mercifulness and looking for opportunities to demonstrate mercy, you're going to be the ones to receive mercy. I want to ask each of you here, because, man, I, I came in with a, with a heavy heart today and just praying about opportunities to be able to give mercy in a situation that, that, it, that was heavy to me. Is there anybody here where you know that God has placed in front of you an opportunity to be the shower of mercy. And we know that Jesus was truly the example of the truly merciful one who came and took upon sin that he did not commit so that he could give us a righteousness that we did not deserve. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. That's an interesting one when it's just a pronouncement of what he sees. I don't know that he would see that in the jadedness of New Jersey. Like we all just kind of have an angle on anything. Is there any, is there ever a time that somebody knocks on your door that you don't see it as like a nuisance? Like, ah, what do you want? Like, no, he's not saying that. He's saying, blessed are the ones who have this unjadedness towards the world. You're presently flourishing in my kingdom. And Jesus is the true example of what it means to be pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. In a world that we live in where whoever shouts the loudest is the person who has been crowned victorious, he's saying that it's not always the one who goes to rage level midnight that wins the argument. It's also the people who are willing to just step back and insert peace because Jesus Christ, as Isaiah 9, 6 said, is the prince of peace who came in to reign among us. Last ones, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness sake. There's probably no greater way to reflect our Savior than suffering for him suffering with him and suffering for the sake of that which is not right to be made right. We show the world that we're willing to live with Christ, which means we live like Christ. But when we take on suffering as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount and particularly in the Beatitudes, we show that we have also died with Christ and we continue to die with Christ daily to the elemental things of this world. Amen? And now, nowhere... Do we see that more clearly than Jesus was the one who was truly persecuted for righteousness sake? Like a lamb who is led before the slaughter, innocent, though he did not open his mouth. Though reviled, he reviled not. Jesus' willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness is what opened up the floodgates for we who were unrighteous to be made right in the sight of God through our king's suffering. So why is all this important as we start to wrap up here? It's important because the kingdom's supposed to reflect the king. That's the central message of the Beatitudes and why the Beatitudes are set at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom should reflect the king. So the life of the people in the kingdom should reflect life of the king. So if the king came as poor and meek and as a lowly servant to his kingdom, the church should really start to examine ourselves when we see ourselves being put in a higher place of authority than the king of kings put himself in when he came to walk this earth. This is why I get really nervous when I see the church affiliating itself with political systems and ideologies of thoughts or when I see the church being raised up to places of prestige and honor because if anything the last decade has shown us that when people put prestige and honor as the goal for the church, Jesus will come and knock your knees down and the fall will be great. We are a kingdom of dregs to this earth. And man, that is powerful to those who are looking. Anybody with might can go and take a kingdom and make one. Only Jesus could take the dregs of the earth and say, I'm going to build the true kingdom and restore that which was broken on their backs. So why does this posture reflect the king? Because the very things that Jesus said define the kingdom, also define the way he came and lived out 
the kingdom amongst us. But the kingdom does not only reflect the life of the king, the Beatitudes also show that it reflects the death of the king, the one who made peace with our enmity with God by being willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake to be our peacemaker. So the church should be willing to die to itself in order to manifest this thing called the kingdom to the world that is living around us. For us to die with Christ is gain, and to die with Christ is to reign with Christ. After hearing these two points, there have been so many books that have been written about the attributes of God. And, and there's a lot of good ones that have helped me out a lot. But if you want to study the attributes of God, study the Sermon on the Mount and realize that in a Philippians 2 chapter way, Jesus was the embodiment of each one of these beatitudes when he came and walked the earth. So if you want to know the attributes of God, look at the attributes of Jesus right here in the beatitudes. So as I close, the final reason the context is so important is we're able to see that the salt and light passage that now comes after the Beatitudes that we're going to be looking at next week is a commandment to let our light shine in such a way that people see our Father in heaven. It's merely seeing, saying, brothers, sisters, Christians, Redeemer Fellowship of Tom's River, let us be a kingdom that reflects the King. Jesus picked attributes that were counter-cultural and counter-intuitive to all that this world thinks when they think of kingdom because Jesus was not going to make kingdoms out of mighty rulers. It was to reflect the majesty of the king who subverted the world's system to show what real life is truly supposed to look like in the kingdom. So the commandment to let our light shine before men is placed right after the Beatitudes because the kingdom that came to the people that were now included in Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes is a kingdom that is fundamentally shaped by the actual life and death of the king. Flourishing then means living the life of the king, which ironically includes dying with him, that we might reign with him and be raised up with him anew. Living the life of the king causes the church to shine the light of God in such a good way where they see our brokenness and our destituteness, but there's something beautiful that's coming out of it. And people are able to say, I don't get this. It's not through worldly means that they've been able to express this beauty, but through their brokenness, they have been able to manifest the very fragrance of Christ from life to life to those who are being saved. And when the world sees that put on display, they see our King put on display. That's why this matters. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the Beatitudes. Thank you that you could have come and made a kingdom out of the rich, the mighty, or those who were morally excellent, but instead... In your divine grace, you have come and chosen sinners, a sinner such as me, to be the vehicles through which you shine your magnificent grace. Lord, let your kingdom shine through Redeemer Fellowship of Tom's River and Point Pleasant this day so that people might see our good works, not to us, but to give glory to our Father in heaven. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.